Let me tell you a story, podcast number 79. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, never mind how long it was. Never mind it is a truth universally You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. We're happy to be able to introduce you to a new friend today. Sharon Brown is an Idaho poet whose childhood was spent on a ranch across the border in Washington, and she writes about, well, here... I'll let her tell you about her poetry. Do you have any particular subjects you like to write about, Sharon? I actually like to write in a variety of genre, cowgirl poetry based on childhood memories, but also spiritual poetry, uh, romantic poetry. I'm best known for my cowgirl poetry. That seems to be a popular genre in general cowgirl cowboy poetry. I have my own page at cowboypoetry.com and I have had more invitations to share my cowgirl poetry. For example, I had Hand on the Wheel published in a real magazine (laughs) (laughs) and I've been invited to recite cowgirl poetry. So do you do the Nevada thing? The I do not, but my brother Smokeway does, putting in a plug for him. (laughs) Smokeway? (laughs) What a name. All right, let me ask you a question here, Sharon. It's always interesting to know a process or how a writer gets the ideas. Where do they come from? How do you make it all happen? For me, usually I will get either a phrase, a vision, or an idea, or a theme. And it could come to me when I'm driving somewhere and I'm in a daydreamy mood or just going about my day. And so when I have a moment, I'll sit down and just write out that phrase. And then when I have time to go back to it, I'll write out that phrase and this vision starts to come in my mind. And then it's like the poem writes itself. I might stay up all night doing that, or it might be, you know, that I'll spend several days doing that or and then put it away and come back. But usually when I get started, I don't want to stop. What are your thoughts? <laughs> well, it's similar for me in writing mostly poetry. I do other stuff, but I get one word, and, and sometimes it can be from anywhere. A lot of times a word will just randomly pop into my head. I don't know where it comes from, and that will be the beginning, and I'll think of that, I'll think of a word that rhymes, and I'll think of what could go with it and how it could be funny. But sometimes, you know, it's not a fast thing. So I've had them, uh, I've probably written a poem in maybe five minutes and two years and counting. (laughs) So it just depends on what it is, how long it takes, but I don't want it out there until I'm satisfied with it. I was just going to add to that. I also have with me when I'm actually writing the poem, uh, thesaurus, online thesaurus, and also a website where you can look up words that rhyme. (laughs) And then I actually try to look for unusual words when I'm doing those searches. Right. Sounds like we have the same plan there. Uh, Dictionary.com, 
thesaurus.com and rhymezone.com. I don't think I could work with that. You know, I used to do it without the computer. It was all desk and paper, and I have a rhyming dictionary, but it's not the same because sometimes you can look for a long time for something that's instantaneously available. Well, and if you're like me, I'm even surprised. I surprise myself when I look online on those sources that you just cited, and I find a word that I myself would not have thought of, but it's perfect. It is, and that, that's what makes it fun, because you know what your, your goal or your... I usually start with the last line and work backwards, kind of like a punchline to a joke. You have to know how to get there. You have to build your story to make it make sense. So you know where you're going, but you don't necessarily care how you get there. And then you see these words, oh, I could go, I could take this little side trip and get there faster or clearer or would take fewer words if I used this one. Precisely. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you. Now, back to the hostess. <laughs> Let's see. What else? How long have you been writing poetry? You know, I wrote... Reflecting back, I realized that I wrote some poetry here and there in childhood, but it didn't really stick in my brain that I did until I began writing poetry more earnestly in 2007. And it seemed there for several years, starting in 2007, that a muse came to visit me, and I was just writing lots and lots of poetry. I would, um, a phrase or a theme would come to me and I would sit down and start writing and then the poem would start to write itself. Hmm, very cool. I don't know if you've ever been asked this one before, but if you could spend the morning walking around a lake with another poet, dead or alive, <laughs> what poet would you choose to uh, do that with? Well, you think I'll answer that one. <laughs> You'd walk with a live one. <laughs> In theory. <laughs> I confess I'm not that well-versed on all the poets that are out there, alive or not alive. <laughs> but I, I do really like Emily Dickinson. I recently visited England in May, and I visited Elizabeth Barrett Browning's house, 50 Wimpole Street. That was a real thrill. Oh, cool. It's now a heart hospital. <laughs> this is in poetry, but I also visited all of Jane Austen's residences, every place that she lived, breathed, and died. And that was a thrill. Wow. <laughs> That's a pretty cool tour. Sounds fun. So well, I'll, I'll let you off the hook with the questions. And we will move on to some readings or recitation, whichever you prefer to do, of her poems. We'll have several throughout the podcast. I wrote this poem for my daughter on her 27th birthday. She had been grown and gone for several years, and I was living in Fort Lauderdale, Florida at the time, and she in Seattle with a million miles between us. Not much has changed in the ensuing years for as life would have it, we have traded coastlines and there are still a million miles between us. The Butterfly I remember her when she resided for a season in the garden of my life. With wings of gold dipped in blue, a butterfly as fresh as dew. 
freed at last from her cocoon, ripe for her debut. With trembling wings, she took flight, leaving silky shadows in the light. Across the lawn, she danced and floated, quivering like a ballerina on opening night. As the curtain parted, I saw her there, gliding on a moonbeam with rose petals in her hair. On she flew, fluttering about. Oh, where did she go? Look, over there, splashing in a fairy's pool, shivering with delight, till drops of water like strings of pearl slipped from her velvet wings, an ethereal sight. Too soon I knew this butterfly would yearn to see what lies beyond the garden wall, for the garden could not contain her. And the day did come when off she flew into the wide horizon, while I remain here to bloom again for yet another season. I cannot follow, I have no wings. The most that I can do is toss my seeds into the breeze and hope they land somewhere. For I am a flower in this garden of life, a flower who has seen the maiden dance of a butterfly from a front row seat. I wrote The Night of the Rodeo Queen in honor of my mother, Betty Jean Tippett, who was the 1940 Rodeo Queen of the Lewiston Roundup and the 1938 Princess at the Pendleton Roundup. Well, my mother was a rodeo queen when she was just 19, before she met and married dad and had to cook and clean, before she had five children to sew for, bathe, and feed. Yes, my mother was a rodeo queen when she was a mere 19. She danced one night with Bing Crosby back in those carefree happy days and led her courtly procession round the arena in a rodeo parade. And as bulls and bucking broncos queued up in the wooden chutes, cowboys prepared to mount and ride with rodeo clowns in hot pursuit. My mother presided over all of this with dust kicked up everywhere and bloodied lips and knuckles of cowboys who hoped to snare the coveted silver buckle of a rough and ready ride. It was over in a matter of seconds, but thrashing hooves could decide whether a cowboy got up and quickly walked away or swallowed heaps of sawdust while trampled in the melee. Now those bull riding contests were reserved strictly for the men, but mom could rope and ride and barrel race with the best. You see, my mother was a rodeo queen, and to royalty she was born and bred. Born to a cattle ranching baron, how could she have ever guessed that one day she would put away her fancy saddle and spurs and take on all the responsibility that marriage heaped on her? Years later, while standing at the kitchen window with her hands soaking in a sudsy bath, a stack of breakfast dishes towered before her as she gazed out at the garden path, and the world stopped for a moment as she remembered that magical night, the night when the crowd roared just for her, and she only 19, the night my mother rode into the arena and was crowned a rodeo queen. I wrote Hand on the Wheel from childhood memories of life on a cattle ranch we called Rogersburg, 
in Southeast Washington State. There I was driving the old red pickup truck with peeling paint and dented fender, dusty seats and cluttered dashboard, driving round the field on the bank of the swift flowing river. We were tucked in underneath vertical hills of the rugged river canyon, out of sight of the big ranch house where mama was cooking supper. I drove all by myself as the sun was going down behind the canyon walls while dad pitched hay out the back of the flatbed. Me so small in a big cowboy hat that I had to push it back out of my eyes to see. Had to sit up high on my knees to reach that big old steering wheel and look out the windshield just barely. With the gear stuck in neutral, old truck going slow, shaking along, inching forward, round and round the field in a spiral a fragrant alfalfa, calves bawling, cattle mooing, ambling towards us. I drove with tiny hands on that big wheel, so slowly round and round, till all the cows had been fed, every last one, and a day's work had been done. Chapter 29 of Treasure Island, but I'll back up just a paragraph for as a reminder. And he took another swallow of the brandy, shaking his great fair head like a man who looks forward to the worst. Now the next chapter, The Black Spot Again. The council of the buccaneers had lasted some time when one of them re-entered the house and with a repetition of the same salute, which had in my eyes an ironical air, begged for a moment's loan of the torch. Silver briefly agreed, and this emissary retired again, leaving us together in the dark. "'There's a breeze coming, Jim,' said Silver, who had by this time adopted quite a friendly and familiar tone. I turned to the loophole nearest me and looked out. The embers of the great fire had so far burned themselves out and now glowed so low and duskily that I understood why these conspirators desired a torch. About halfway down the slope to the stockade, they were collected in a group. One held the light, another was on his knees in their midst, and I saw the blade of an open knife shine in his hand with varying colors in the moon and torchlight. The rest were all somewhat stooping, as though watching the maneuvers of this last. And I could just make out that he had a book as well as a knife in his hand, and was still wondering how anything so incongruous had come in their possession, when the kneeling figure rose once more to his feet, and the whole party began to move together towards the house. Here they come, said I, and I returned to my former position, for it seemed beneath my dignity that they should find me watching them. Well, let em come, lad. Let em come, said Silver, cheerily. I've still a shot in my locker. The door opened, and the five men, standing huddled together just inside, pushed one of their number forward. 
and any other circumstances, it would have been comical to see this slow advance, hesitating as he set down each foot, but holding his closed right hand in front of him. "'Step up, lad!' cried Silver. "'I won't eat you. Hand it over, lubber. I know the rules I do. I won't hurt a deputation.' This encouraged, the buccaneer stepped forth more briskly, and having passed something to Silver from hand to hand, slipped yet more smartly back again to his companions. The sea cook looked at what had been given him. The black spot! I thought so, he observed. Where might you have got the paper? Why, hello! Look here now. This ain't lucky. You've gone and cut this out of a Bible. What fools cut a Bible? Ah, there, said Morgan. There! What did I say? No good'll come of that, I said. Well, you've about fixed it now among you, continued Silver. You'll all swing now, I reckon. What soft-headed lubber had a Bible? It was Dick, said one. Dick, was it? Then Dick can get to prayers, said Silver. He's seen his slice of luck, has Dick, and you may lay to that. But here the long man with the yellow eyes struck in. Belay that talk, John Silver, he said. This crew has tipped you the black spot in full council as in duty bound. Just you turn it over as in duty bound and see what's wrote there. Then you can talk. Thank you, George, replied the sea cook. You always was brisk for business and has the rules by heart, George, as I am pleased to see. Well, what is it anyway? Ah, deposed. That's it, is it? Very pretty wrote, to be sure, like print. I swear. Your hand all right, George? Why, you was getting quite a leading man in this here crew. You'll be capping next, I shouldn't wonder. Just oblige me with that torch again, will you? This pipe don't draw. Come now, said George. You don't fool this crew no more. You're a funny man by your account, but you're over now. And you'll maybe step down off that barrel and help vote. I thought you said you knowed the rules, returned Silver, temptuously. Leastways, if you don't, I do. And I wait here, and I'm still your cap'n, mind, till you outs with your grievances, and I reply, in the meantime, your black spot ain't worth a biscuit. After that, we'll see. Oh, replied George, you don't be under no kind of apprehension. We're all square, we are. First, you've made a hash of this cruise. You'll be a bold man to say no to that. Second, you let the enemy out of this here trap for nothing. Why did they want out? I don't know, but it's pretty plain they wanted it. Third, you wouldn't let us go at them upon the march. Oh, we see through you, John Silver. You want to play booty. That's what's wrong with you. And then, fourth, there's this here boy. Is that all? asked Silver quietly. Enough, too, retorted George. We'll all swing and sun-dry for your bungling. Well, now, look here. I'll answer these four points, one after another. I'll answer them. I made a hash of this cruise, did I? Well, now, you all know what I wanted, and you all know, if that had been done, that we'd have been aboard the Hispaniola this night as ever was, every man of us alive and fit and full of good plum duff, and the treasure in the hold of her by thunder. Well, who crossed me? Who forced my hand, as was the lawful captain? Who tipped me the black spot the day we landed and began this dance? Ah, oh, it's a fine dance. I'm with you there. 
and looks mighty like a hornpipe and a rope's end at execution dock by London town, it does. But who done it? Why, it was Anderson, and Hans, and you, George Mary. And you're the last above board of that same meddling crew, and you have the Davy Jones's insolent to up and stand for cappin' over me. You, that sank the lot of us, by the powers, but this tops the stiffest yarn to nothing. Silver paused, and I could see by the faces of George and his late comrades that those words had not been said in vain. That's for number one, cried the accused, wiping the sweat from his brow, for he had been talking with a vehemence that shook the house. Why, I give you my word, I'm sick to speak to you. You've neither sense nor memory, and I leave it to fancy where your mother's was that let you come to see. See, gentlemen of fortune, I reckon tailors is your trade. Go on, John, said Morgan. Speak up to the others. Ah, the others, returned John. They're a nice lot, ain't they? You say this cruise is bungled. Ah, by gum, if you could understand how bad it's bungled, you would see. Were that near the gibbet that my neck's stiff with thinking on it. You've seen em, maybe. Hanged in chains, birds about em, seamen putting em out as they go down with the tide. Who's that, says one. That? Why, that's John Silver. I knowed him well, says another. And you can hear the chains a-jangle as you go about and reach for the other buoy. Now that's about where we are. Every mother's son of us, thanks to him, and Hans and Anderson, and other ruination fools of you. And if you want to know about number four... And that boy, why shiver my timbers? Isn't he a hostage? Are we a-going to waste a hostage? No, not us. He might be our last chance, and I shouldn't wonder. Kill that boy? Not me, mates. And number three? Ah, well, there's a deal to say to number three. Maybe you don't count it nothing to have a real college doctor come to see you every day. You, John, with your head broke. Or you, George Mary that had the ague shakes upon you not six hours are gone, and has your eyes the color of lemon peeled at the same moment on the clock? And maybe, perhaps, you didn't know there was a consort coming, either? But there is, and not so long till then, and we'll see who'll be glad to have a hostage when it comes to that. And as for number two, and why I made a bargain, well, you came crawling on your knees to me to make it. On your knees you came. You was that downhearted. And you'd have starved, too, if I hadn't. But that's a trifle. You look there, that's why. And he cast down upon the floor a paper that I instantly recognized none other than the chart on yellow paper, with the three red crosses that I had found in the oilcloth at the bottom of the captain's chest. Why the doctor had given it to him was more than I could fancy. But if it were inexplicable to me, the appearance of the chart was incredible to the surviving mutineers. They leaped upon it like cats upon a mouse. It went from hand to hand, one tearing it from another, and by the oaths and the cries and the childish laughter with which they accompanied their examination, you would have thought not only were they fingering the very gold, but were at sea with it, besides, in safety. Yes, said one, that's Flint, sure enough. J.F. and a score below, with a clove hitch to it. So he done ever. Mighty pretty, said George, but how are we to get away with it? And us no ship. Silver suddenly sprang up and supporting himself with a hand against the wall. Now I give you warning, George, he cried. 
One more word of your sauce and I'll call you down and fight you. How? Why? How do I know? You had ought to tell me that. You and the rest that lost me my schooner with your interference burn you. But not you. You can't. You hain't got the invention of a cockroach. But civil you can speak and shall, George Mary. You may lay to that. That's fair enough, said the old man Morgan. Fair, I reckon so, said the sea cook. You lost the ship. I found the treasure. Who's the better man at that? And now I resign by thunder. Elect whom you please to be your captain now. I'm done with it. Silver, they cried. Barbecue forever. Barbecue for cap'n. So that's the tune, is it? cried the cook. George, I reckon you'll have to wait another turn, friend. And lucky for you as I'm not a revengeful man. But that was never my way. And now, shipmates, this black spot? Tain't much good now, is it? Dick's crossed his luck and spoiled his Bible. And that's about all. It'll do to kiss the book on still, won't it? growled Dick who was evidently uneasy at the curse that he had brought upon himself. "'A Bible with a bit cut out?' returned Silver, derisively. "'Not it. It don't buy no more in a ballad book.' "'Don't it, though?' cried Dick, with a sort of joy. "'Well, I reckon that's worth having, too.' "'Here, Jim, here's a curiosity for you,' said Silver, and he tossed me the paper. It was a round, about the size of a crown piece.' One side was blank, for it had been the last leaf. The other contained a verse or two of revelation, these words among the rest, which struck sharply home upon my mind. Without our dogs and murderers. The printed side had been blackened with wood ash, which already began to come off and soil my fingers. On the blank side had been written with the same material as one word, deposed. I have that curiosity beside me at this moment but not a trace of writing now remains beyond a single scratch, such as a man might make with his thumbnail. That was the end of the night's business. Soon after, with a drink all round, we lay down to sleep, and the outside of Silver's vengeance was to put George Mary up for sentinel and threaten him with death if he should prove unfaithful. It was long ere I could close an eye, and heaven knows I had matter enough for thought in the man whom I had slain that afternoon in my own most perilous position, and above all in the remarkable game that I saw Silver now engaged upon, keeping the mutineers together with one hand and grasping with the other, after every means possible and impossible, to make his peace and save his miserable life. He himself slept peacefully and snored aloud, Yet my heart was sore for him, wicked as he was, to think on the dark perils that environed and the shameful gibbet that awaited him. Red Bouquet Abundant bouquet of blushing red gladiolas overflowing with elegance from your powerful arms like graceful ballerinas gathered together draped in crimson gowns and wearing tiaras adorned with dewdrops their long necks extended in supple poses. You bought them for me in a spontaneous moment, a romantic gesture that delightful evening last summer 
as warm breezes softly tease the ambient mood. When you told me I looked delicious, it had been a month since we last saw each other and we were hungry. Flowers offered with such tenderness in strong yet gentle hands, they could have easily crushed those delicate blossoms. You were so courtly when you handed that wildly gorgeous bouquet to me, as if you were Prince Charming presenting me with an enchanted glass slipper. I felt like a princess, yes, even at my age. Later, standing at my kitchen sink in blue jeans, you took time to trim the ends and casually arrange long emerald stems with scarlet blooms and a crystal vase especially for me. And it was then, in that moment, as you stood there arranging that bouquet, when my heart first took notice of you and flew away soaring to uncharted realms. I knew not where, like unfurling petals, plucking my resolve to remain elusive. It was in that moment when you stole my heart you and your red bouquet. Today I set my spirit free. Today I set my spirit free, let go of the past that still haunted me, released the pain that clung so tightly, forgave unkind words that had been spoken, forgot about promises that have been broken, put down the sword that I'd been carrying, laid down that hatchet that needed burying, handed over burdens that weighed me down, and all those worries which made me frown, cast off doubts that held me back, stopped keeping score, no need to keep track, held my tongue, tempered my comments, dropped preconceived notions that clouded my judgment, freed myself from the fear that held me in chains, stepped into sunshine and out of the rain. Yes, today I set my spirit free, opened up my heart, embraced my vulnerability, examined my motives and took responsibility, looked for God in every face. With human frailty, I saw grace and saw the beauty in every moment of every day. Life seems far richer when lived that way. Rebuilt bridges, mended fences, extended many olive branches. Reached out my hand to those in need, sowed compassion, planted seeds. Forgot about myself for a while, took a stroll, wore a smile. Stopped along the way to smell the roses, forgot about time, enjoyed the moment. Turned a corner within my soul, relinquished control, went with the flow, much more content to let things be and enjoy the peace of tranquility, savor time spent in a contemplative mood, reflecting on life in my solitude, learning to walk in humility and transcend my ego for all eternity. Did I finally remove that weight on my shoulder? Or perhaps this is the wisdom that comes with getting older. Today I set my spirit free. I stood in the light and let it wash over me. 
and became the lighthouse my soul was always meant to be. By accepting the red rose of love into my heart, I thank you, Great Spirit, for this brand new start. In our reading of Winds of Wyoming, we're now in chapter 24. I recently revised my first novel, which is Winds of Wyoming, and so beginning with this chapter, I'll be reading from the revised version. The storyline hasn't changed. I just um, smoothed out some, oh, I I wouldn't call them errors, but just some um, new writer things, habits, bad habits I had with that first book and did those kinds of fixes. I, I just feel like it's a smoother read. So, chapter 24. Kate and Dimple sat on the patio, staring at the papers the Dimples had left on the table. Kate was too exhausted and in too much pain to care about her future. I should leave, she said. I don't want to bring any more trouble into your life. You call this trouble? Dimple sputtered. I call it an an adventure. You can't imagine how long it's been since this old lady had any excitement in her life. Her expression grew serious. I'm your friend, Kate. As I told you before, God and I will stand by you no matter where this particular adventure takes you. I'm not sure I'd call it an adventure, said Kate. Name it what you want. Journey, passage, joyride. But remember, I'll be in the boat with you. You're stuck with me. Kate took Dimple's wrinkled hand in both of hers. I can't begin to say how much I appreciate all you've done for me. I will never forget you. She pulled a leaf fragment from her friend's white hair. I wish you could meet my great Aunt Mary. You remind me of her. You've mentioned your anchovy before, Dimple said. Tell me about her. Kate, who had moments earlier feared she'd never smile again, grinned. She's probably about your age and has always been there for me, always believed in me, always encouraged me. When no one else cared whether I was dead or alive, she was there. Oops, that might be saying too much. Everyone who knows her loves her. People call Aunt Mary from all over the country to ask her to pray for them. I'd be thrilled to meet her, Dimple said. Could I use your phone to call my aunt and my friend Amy to tell them I'm at your house, Kate asked. They don't know about the accident or that I was in the hospital. I'll pay you for the calls. I'll get the phone for you and fix lunch while you're talking. You look like you could use fortification after what you endured this morning. If you don't mind, Kate said, all that interests me right now is a pain pill in bed. But first... I need to give them each a quick call. She would tell Aunt Mary and Amy about the accident, plus give Amy a rundown of her current legal status. She'd also tell her someone else must have written those wacky emails. Kate opened her eyes. In her dream, a woodpecker had been boring into the side of the house. As she awoke, she realized she was hearing the bang of the door knocker, syncopated by Dimple's footsteps. 
Still drug drowsy, she closed her eyes and prayed the deputies hadn't returned to ask more questions. She was so, so tired. The moment Dimple opened the door, a loud, insistent voice demanded, Is Kate Nielsen here? Kate knew the voice. Tara Hughes. She opened her eyes, all senses on alert. Dimple's reply was steady as steel. If I knew where to find the man in the moon, I wouldn't tell you. The sound of the front door bouncing against the wall made Kate sit straight up. She had hoped to keep her location hidden, but she couldn't let Tara harm Dimple. A throaty cackle filled the house. Those fancy bugs on your chest make good targets. Tara screamed, Put that gun down! Kate reached for her wheelchair, but Dimple's calm voice stopped her. You are an intruder on my property. If you don't leave this instant, your moths will migrate south early. They're butterflies, you old biddy. My daddy will get you for this. Your daddy comes to my house. He'll receive the same reception. Kate heard Tara swear, then stomp across the flagstone pathway. For a moment, all was quiet. Then the hummer revved to life and squealed away. The next sound was that of Dimple closing the front door. Kate fell onto her pillow, her pulse pounding in her neck. Dimple peered around the doorway. Her cheeks were nearly as red as her lips. I'm awake, Kate lifted her head. That was Tara Hughes, wasn't it? The one and only. What did she want? You, Dimple stepped into the room. Any idea why? No, Kate said. How did she find out where I'm staying? I have no idea. Only the sheriff's department and the Duncans know you're here. Kate stared out the window. Mike must have told her. No one else knew her whereabouts, other than his mom, who would never tell Tara anything. She bit her lip. Tara would go straight to Ramsey, wherever he was. She turned to Dimple. I have to leave. Tara may have left, but she's not the type to lay off for long. Don't worry about me, Dimple said on the chair by the window. As you can see, with God's help, I'm able to take care of myself. But there's a person in my life, Kate said. Someone who followed me here. He's far more dangerous than Tara. Somehow he connected with her. I've seen them together. Figures said Dimple. That woman has a knack for attracting trouble. He's the reason I wanted to keep my whereabouts secret. But if Tara knows, he'll soon know, if he doesn't already, and he'll come after me. I should go to a motel so you'll be safe. We've got to face this head on, Kate, Dimple straightened. There's no victory in running from problems. If God directs us to go, fine. But so far, I sense he wants us to remain right here. He's got a plan and a purpose in this. Kate shut her eyes. She was too tired to think about it. Can I ask you a question, Dimple? Of course. Would you... She opened her eyes. Would you have shot Tara if she hadn't left? Of course. I'm a woman of my word. Kate eyed the older woman. She'd met murderers in prison. Dimple didn't seem the type. I would have shot her in the foot and been called the sheriff to haul her off my property. Dimple snorted. Or me, 
not sure which one of us they'd take. But I couldn't let her force her way into my home. With that, we'll end this podcast. And another thank you to Sharon Brown. And we thank you for listening. Uh, Until next time, happy reading. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckyliles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckyliles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.